be seated. I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me to Nehemiah. This morning we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. We are making our way through this study of the book of Nehemiah. Last Lord's Day, we saw how God began to answer Nehemiah's prayer for the physical restoration of Jerusalem, especially and specifically the wall that protected the city from her enemies. As we've talked about also that Ezra, the book of Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah go together, they are telling in a sense the same history, but from different perspectives. And so it's 13 years before Nehemiah starts to make his way to Jerusalem, God has sent Ezra the priest back to Jerusalem with the first wave of returned exiles so he could help lead them in spiritual restoration. They have been in exile uh, for they have been in exile because for generations upon generations, God's people would sin, and they would sin boldly, and they would not be repentant of it. So God, in His loving, fatherly manner, begins to discipline them in order to drive that sin away and bring them to repentance. And so we find that Ezra's job was to lead them in spiritual restoration, as God leads His people out of the discipline of exile and back to the Holy Land and the Holy City. Now, God has sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem to begin that arduous work of rebuilding the wall and helping to restore Jerusalem to its former glory. So that brings us to our reading this morning, which is chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Let me pray for us, and we'll come to God's Word together. Lord, we thank you that we can come together to your Word. And even though I'm the one speaking, we can read it together, and together we can hear the message in it. So I pray that this message came from you. This isn't the result of of my brain or my heart. This This is first and foremost from you. That through the work of the Spirit, you gave me these words. And so through the work of the Spirit, may I speak these words so your people may understand them. We may understand what you're telling us here and how you are calling us to live in faith through you, how you are calling us, calling some of us to faith in you. Lord, be at work in this way this morning. We pray for your glory and for yours alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put to my heart to do for Jerusalem. There is no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, but there is no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night, by the valley, and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. 
Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with the gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer <coughs> suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. How are we meant to read the Bible? When we pick it up and begin to read, how are we meant to read it? What are we, what are we to look for? What directions are there for us to help us read the Bible? And that's a big question. It's a question we've asked before, and we've come to the answer that it is built upon wisdom and counsel and teaching of those who have gone before us. How do we read the Bible? We read it by understanding that it's not about you and me, it's about Jesus. The Bible isn't about how to to be a better person, how to be more successful in life. The Bible isn't about how to make your way up the ladder and life or society and work. The Bible is about Jesus. So how do you and I read the Bible? We read it by understanding that his main premise is Jesus. That no matter where we turn to in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it is always about Jesus. As John Calvin taught, we ought to read the Scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. That's our direction. That's how we read the Bible. When we pick up to read in our devotions or to look for a passage of comfort, as we come together on Sunday morning, we pick up a book that isn't about you. It's about Jesus. But that still leads to the question, what does it mean that the Bible is all about Jesus? Well, it means that whenever we read any part of the Bible, any verse, any passage, any chapter, we do so with the question in mind, where is Jesus? When I come to this verse, when I come to this passage, when I come to this chapter, where is Jesus in this? When I read the creation story in Genesis, where is Jesus? When I read through the genealogy, where is Jesus? When I read through the Psalms, the Gospels, even Revelation, when we read the Bible, we are meant to seek Jesus. No matter where we are, Old Testament, New Testament, narrative, historical, uh, uh, allegory, wherever it is, we're to be looking for Christ in those passages. So whenever we read the Bible, that's what we're, we're looking. Where is Jesus? Where do we find Jesus in this verse, passage, and chapter? We're always seeking to find how this part of God's word is pointing us to Jesus. So we come to this passage in Nehemiah that reads like the journal of an engineer. There's a problem. 
And the problem is the wall of Jerusalem. And he needs to fix it. And he goes through and he's telling us how he begins to fix it. Nowhere Jesus mentioned. Nowhere salvation mentioned. So, when we come to this, where do we find Jesus in this passage? Well, there's two answers. There's the broad answer. That God is fulfilling his purpose to redeem his people. And that it is to the city of Jerusalem that Christ will come and offer his life as a ransom for many. So God is using Nehemiah and his work to prepare for the coming of Christ. That's the broad answer. So many years before Jesus even came, God was preparing the physical place where Jesus would come to offer salvation for many. That's the broad answer. But there's a narrow answer. And the narrow answer is that Nehemiah exhibits godly behavior and wisdom. He exhibits the wisdom behavior, which is the implication of a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated life. With Nehemiah, we find what the Christian life should look like. It's a godly life. It's a wise life. It's a life that is obedient to God. It's a godliness that can only be found through faith and in union with Christ. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the narrow answer that we find in the Nehemiah passage. That this is a Christ-like wisdom in Nehemiah that you and I are called to pursue and emulate as followers of Christ. As those who have been purchased by the life, blood, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we live in such a godly manner as Nehemiah did? Well, the answer begins with a journey. Nehemiah's journey to Jerusalem. Now, it would have taken Nehemiah about four months to make this journey, but he doesn't go alone. He tells us that he goes in part with what he requested. Letters to the governors of the province beyond the river. This will give him freedom to travel through the lands. But he also mentions that he went with a military escort. Now, again, the book in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah go together. When we go to Ezra's story, Ezra goes with a military or without a military escort. Nehemiah goes with one, Ezra goes with one without without. So 13 years before, Ezra and the other Ezra and the other exiles form a caravan and they make this four-month journey on their own. There's no military escort with them. Now, Ezra didn't ask for one, he didn't have one. But we go back and we look at what Nehemiah requested, and Nehemiah never requested from the king for a military escort. But the king offered one, and Nehemiah took it. Does this mean, then, that Nehemiah was a man of little faith? Oh, ye of little faith. Did Nehemiah, the government official, not trust God as much as Ezra the priest did? Well, that's not the issue at work here. Actually, what Nehemiah does, it shows a trust in God. His accepting this escort is a matter of wisdom. Because he's going to Jerusalem as a sort of ambassador of the king. He's on staff. He's one of the higher ranking officials. And he's going to this royal edict to rebuild the wall. And he's going through lands that are less than friendly in in political means. That's why he needs the letters. 
And that's why he needs the escort. Ezra was just a priest. I want to put that in quotation marks. But Ezra was not a political threat. The others just look at him, probably look at him as a religious fanatic with a caravan who's going back to this desolate city. What do they have to worry about this religious fanatic and these, and these people? But Nehemiah, he's an ambassador of the king. He's the cupbearer. The king has put his hands, his life in his hands. Nehemiah's on this trip, on this journey. So the wise thing for him to do was to trust the Lord's provision and the king providing the escorts. That seems like Nehemiah probably would have gone without it. But the king said, Nehemiah, I, I think you're going to need some help. And Nehemiah goes, yes, sir, I, I think you're right. So it was very much an act of faith. It was wisely taking what was given in order to accomplish what God had answered in his prayers. And we see that God works that way in our lives as well. There are times that God provides things for us that we didn't ask for, but in wisdom, we need to take it to help us accomplish what we're called to do. But there's another lesson here, and, and Dr. Derek Thomas points this out in his commentary. And it's the fact that two godly men could arrive at, a different, at different conclusions about a similar issue. Two godly men looked at this journey. Ezra said, I don't need an escort. And Nehemiah said, it would be good for me to have an escort. It's a reminder that we need to be careful not to entertain overjudgmental opinions about others' actions when we are ignorant of all the details. Boy, we are good in our society about doing that, aren't we? We are good about judging others. Take the vaccine or not. Be vaccinated from other diseases or not. To go this route or to go this route. My grandfather uh, unfortunately passed this along to me. I had to fight it all the days of my life, which is when I do something, that's the right way to do it. And everybody else ought to do it that way. Right? And why would you do it another way? Why would you come to a different conclusion and go that way? But here we have Ezra and Nehemiah looking at the same issue and coming to different conclusions. It's possible to conclude that Ezra and Nehemiah, were, were, I, one of them was mistaken his conclusion, but what seems more likely is that both were correct. Because Ezra has made a statement affirming God's protection to the king, so it didn't make it difficult to say, well, I think I need an escort. Nehemiah, too, had not asked for one, but it was granted one, something that would have been difficult to refuse without creating an air of suspicion about his real intentions in going to Jerusalem. So it's possible to employ Paul's rule that we would become all things to all men without necessarily contravening Scripture's rules of behavior. All things are lawful to me, including a military escort, but not all things are helpful such as when Ezra had previously expressed his complete trust that God will protect him. So with Nehemiah, we find this godly wisdom that comes from faith in Christ. It's a wisdom that trusts in God and his provisions above and beyond anything else. It's a wisdom of knowing that what God provides is good and the wisdom that we take what God provides because he only provides what is good for us. 
Even the hard things. Even the hard times. God provides only what is good for us. So that's the godly wisdom we find with Nehemiah here. But once Nehemiah makes it to Jerusalem, he takes great care to put together a good plan, as we see in verses 11 through 17. Matter of fact, careful planning was the first thing on Nehemiah's list of strategic things to get done. Now again, we need to remember that Nehemiah had only heard of Jerusalem. He was a child of the exile. He was born in exile. He had heard stories of Jerusalem. He, the word, patri- word pictures had been painted for him. Love for the city had been implanted into his mind and heart. But Nehemiah had never set his eyes on Jerusalem. This is his first time there. And so godly wisdom dictated that he needed to first see the problem before offering a solution. Because it's easy to complain about a problem but not have a solution. And ultimately, what good does that do? Do we like it when somebody comes to us and says, here's the problem? Well, do you have a solution? Nope. But I got a problem. It's much more helpful when you come and say, here's the problem. Maybe here's some, some solution to it. And so Christ-like wisdom leads us to understand that if we know there's a problem, at the very least, we can look for a solution that is proper. See, wisdom seeks to have more answers than questions to problems that arise. And that's what Nehemiah did. Notice how he did it. He gets to the city and he's there for about three days. He's presumably getting settled in. He's he's meeting other people there. Uh, He's he's starting to formulate a plan. But he doesn't tell anyone why he's there. Do you notice that? Complete secret. Uh, All the folks in Jerusalem know is that a representative of the king is there. He doesn't walk in and say, all right. We're going to fix the wall. Takes three days. And then he waits until the cover of night. Takes a few trusted men and begins to assess the state of the walls. He had heard the reports, right? People come to him and said, here's the problem with the wall. He had heard reports, but he knew that he needed to lay his own eyes on it. It's like the old saying goes, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. So Nehemiah inspects. He goes from place to place. He sees how bad it really is so he can start to formulate a good plan on how to take care of the problem. Then he goes to leaders with the plan. So there's something to be said about the wisdom of good and careful planning, of presenting something where you have more answers than questions. About halfway through my seminary career, I believed I wanted to be a chaplain in the Air Force. So I began to pursue that path. I met with my denominational rep. He told me how to get started. I began to, the paperwork to be, in, uh, to be a chaplain candidate. So I get up in the morning and running, trying to get in better shape because I knew boot camp was going to be brutal. But for about six months to a year... I was pursuing the path of being a chaplain candidate. I wanted to go in the Air Force, do 20 years, get out with a nice retirement and go and see what else happens. But some point into it, the Lord began to shut all doors to that route. Now, I wanted to be a chaplain because of the particular ministry it afforded, but also I wanted to learn leadership. I have high respect for military leadership And I thought it would be beneficial for me to learn it via serving in the military. 
but the Lord shut that door to me. And then he opened the door for me to go to Wild ARP in Georgia and serve under Tom Shoger, who had graduated the Naval Academy and had been a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps. And I described my time with Tom as like being in boot camp without being yelled, well, I got yelled at, without, without, being, without all the push-ups. Right? But he was good about teaching me about good leadership as he learned it through the military system. And one of the things he drilled into my head is the need for good planning. He would say to me over and over again, James, it's always better to have more answers than questions. That is how you build trust. Wisdom is it's better to have more answers than questions. That's how you build trust. Because you begin to consider all the costs that go along with it. You're not just coming along with this harebrained idea. You're coming with a beginning to reality. And that's the same thing Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. Listen to what it says in Luke 14. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. It's always good to have a plan. Godly wisdom says it's it's always good to have a plan where you have more answers than questions. This isn't the idea and characteristic of a Jewish man This is the idea and characteristic of the wisdom of Christ. So before Nehemiah says the word to anybody, he invests in careful planning because that is godly wisdom. But he also doesn't make himself the savior of the city. He says to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, well, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah knew how to inspire people. He didn't come in and say, bow down to me because I'm from the king. And I'm really smart. And so I'm here to tell you everything that's wrong, everything y'all have done wrong, and what you're going to do to fix this, and how I'm going to tell you to do all this. No, Nehemiah puts himself there with them. Do you see the trouble we are in? Come, let us build the wall of the city. So here is the cupbearer of the king, rolling up his sleeves, ready to get to work with the exiles. He doesn't wear the mantle of the leader to tell others what to do. He wears the mantle of a leader to serve with them. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it says somewhere in the Bible, it is better to serve than to be served. And and correct me again if I'm wrong, but I think the one who said that was the king of kings. The one who humbled himself, even taken upon the nature of the servant. So what is godly, Christ-like wisdom that the very incarnate God came to serve for and with his people? 
So wisdom is that we lead by serving. Wisdom is that we work alongside each other. We don't sit on a throne barking orders. We roll up our sleeves and we work as best as we can. And this wisdom will always give God all the glory. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Nehemiah is coming with good news for them. We are going to rebuild the wall. But Nehemiah never says, this is my idea. Nehemiah says, this is how God is leading us. God planted this idea. God answered my prayers. God had turned the heart of the king. God had led me here. Nehemiah never once had the attitude of, look at how great I am. His attitude was, look at how great my God is. Christ-like wisdom will always lead us to see how God's sovereign hand is at work for good. It's never about how great I am. It's about how great God is. Look at how my God has worked. Look at how, what my God has done. This is my God. And finally, Christ-like, Christ-like wisdom will always expect opposition to God's work. Satan hates you. That's good news. It's good news when Satan hates you. It means you're a Christian. And he will always resist God's work. Notice that there are three people named in this passage. Sambalot, the Hornite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab. Right? Concerning the first two, we're told that it displeased them greatly, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Together later on with this guy named Geshem, they jeered and despised Nehemiah for what he had come to do in the city. Sambalot is a Babylonian name. And Nehemiah, it gives him the term a Hornite, that is, he's a native uh, of a city about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, ancient history suggests that he was governor of Samaria. Then Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, was likely governor or served Ammon. And Geshem was a powerful chieftain of a clan in, north, in northwest Arabia. I know this means nothing to you, really means nothing to me, until we say it this way. These three individuals represent the rulers of the province to the northeast, to the northwest, and the southeast of Jerusalem. Which means Jerusalem and Nehemiah were surrounded by enemies of God. They did not like what Nehemiah was doing, and they made it known. But behind this trinity of evil lie the works of the evil one. That's why Peter tells us Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking opportunities to capture and devour his prey. Satan did not like the exiles coming back to be able to freely worship God in the Holy Land, in the Holy City. He did not like that the city was going to be fortified. He did not see, he did not want to see good for God's people. And whenever we are at work for the good of God's people, Satan will bring opposition. That isn't mythical. That isn't fantasy. That is biblical. And the moment we start relegating Satan to being just a cartoon character or, or, or something for really weird holy rollers to get into, is the minute we fall into his trap and the minute we begin to fail. Anytime we individually, anytime we collectively as a church try to do anything good, Satan will be opposed. And wisdom is we expect this. Wisdom is we know it's coming. 
And wisdom is how Nehemiah responded when he says, The God of heaven will make us profit, or will make us prosper, and we are his servants who will rise and build, and you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't bow up his chest and say, I'm from the king, and you best listen to me. He didn't say, Come on, give me your best shot. Nehemiah simply points to God. God is the one behind this. God is the one responsible for this. God is the one who will make this prosper. And this isn't wishful thinking for Nehemiah. This is a fact that stems from faith, from faithful praying, from seeing God answer these prayers, and from wisdom in God. So Christ-like wisdom is that we will always expect opposition from Satan. But we will always look to God for success. Because wisdom teaches us that God is bigger, greater, and sovereign. We have the last chapter of history. And the last chapter of history tells us that Satan will be eternally defeated. That is not anything else but 100% certainty. Satan is a defeated foe. Still a foe. And still at work. But God is greater God is bigger and God is sovereign and God will always accomplish his will. His kingdom will always expand and even the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. So where is Jesus in this passage? He's in Nehemiah. He's in Nehemiah's wisdom, a wisdom that stems from faith. And so when we look to Nehemiah in that way, we see this example of Christ-like faith. That when we are in Christ through faith, united to him in faith, we are given a wisdom and we pursue a wisdom that will always count the cost. We'll always be careful in preparation. Is always a servant leader and always looks to God even when opposed by Satan. So may we, as God's people, live like Nehemiah in this wisdom. Pray with me.